So we are, as I mentioned, we're in Nehemiah right now in week five. Uh, we're going to be reading Nehemiah chapter four, verses one through 14 today. And we've been looking at this book in the Bible, and what we've been discovering is, obviously, like every passage of Scripture, we learn about God, and uh, this series is titled Return to God. So this, this, this is the idea that during the fifth century BC, God's people had been exiled, and they're starting to return to Jerusalem, but they really were illiterate to God's Word, they were hopeless, they were even practicing pagan ways and, and worshiping false gods, all these terrible things happening. And uh, what we're going to discover is we're, we're going to learn about ourselves. Obviously, we're going to learn about God more than anything else, but we're going to learn about ourselves, our time, our city, and our church in all of this. And during this, this terrible season, this one of the most impossible seasons of Israel's history, God raises up this guy, Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes is the ruler of the Persian Empire at the time. And he gives him permission and also resources to return to help restore Israel. So the, the broader context here, so that by itself, that isn't a miraculous thing that this Persian king would allow this to happen. God is at work. God moves the hearts of kings and those in power. God's ultimately in control of all things. It's an amazing story. What we see, the broader context is that how did they end up in this place, in, in the first place, in exile? So, you know, God had rescued his people out of slavery, out of, that, out of the house of slave, slavery, as it's called uh, in the Bible, and set them free from that and brought them into a land to build, really, the kingdom of God on earth, really, or the best expression that you could have in a fallen world, the best expression of that, a righteous people, the people with God's law, trusting in God, following God's way, ways, people with the revelation of God's truth. And they were doing decently a couple of times. They, they were getting closer. They were doing all right. Most of it's a complete train wreck, of course. But a couple of times they were doing decently. But then they, they majorly screwed up, worshiping false gods. And they, God, in his grace, in his power, in his wisdom, in his justice, judged them, sent Babylon to conquer them and to exile them to a foreign land, into Babylon. And so there's a small remnant left still by God's grace, preserving God's people, but most of them have been carted off, a lot of death, a lot of destruction, a lot of suffering. It was a massive intervention to stop their evil ways. And any time we see God acting in this way in the Bible, we, sometimes we struggle with these ideas. We're like, God did this to them on purpose. We struggle with it, but it's because we haven't connected the dots and we don't realize how bad things were. You just have to be a little bit of a student of history to realize how evil, how terrible, how gross things can get where you have to say, enough's enough. Massive intervention. We're going we're gonna to exile this entire people group to stop what they're doing, to reset things. And God in his grace preserved this remnant after 70 years. They're in exile for 70 years. People start returning. One of those was Ezra, starts rebuilding the temple. And then 13 years after that, we pick up the events of Nehemiah. It seems that the city's still in disrepair from the original conquering, but the gates and the walls have recently been broken down as well, and the people, the remnant there, and those who are returning are in danger, are vulnerable. And this matters. This matters so much, not just to protect the innocent, not just to preserve a people group, but it matters because God had promised through the descendants of Abraham that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus, would be born. And so all these events are working out God's cosmic plan to bring about the greatest work of salvation through Jesus, who would come in the aftermath, the years and hundreds of years following these events here in Nehemiah. We learn about Nehemiah's prayer and fasting. We learn about he's a man of faith, but he's also a man of action. We've learned about this building project. He secured this, this, this 
uh, timber and all this, all this wood from Artaxerxes in order to rebuild the gates and uh, materials to repair the walls as well. And we see God's provision, and we see a parallel there for us in our tangible community fund that we are, we've got this building project as well, and so we're trying to see some parallels here. They're not direct parallels, but they're lessons that we can learn and apply to our time, to our day, and to what we're doing. Let's pray, and we're going to read this. And today we're going to read about the fact that they are fortifying, they're banding together, they're following Nehemiah's leadership, they're, they're fortifying the city, but now they're going to face massive opposition. They've already had a little bit of opposition, there's been glimmers of it, but now it's increasing rapidly. And we've got some huge lessons to learn. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. Teach us your word. Illuminate it to us that we would have faith and courage to walk into your purposes, Lord, to be those who fulfill the purposes of God in our generation. Lord, that we would not be those who shrink back and who quit, but we're those who persevere. We Give us that Nehemiah spirit, Lord, that we would be builders of your kingdom, no matter the cost, no matter the threat, no matter the opposition, that we would be, you would give us the strength we need. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 4. Now when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and said, Yes, what, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, will break down their stone wall. And then at verse 4, it cuts directly back to Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah's response. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is fight and talk right here, fight and talk. Verse 6, so we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said, uh, said to us ten times, you must return to us. 
So in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, in open spaces, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the, of the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and totally awesome, dude. That's not in there. Who's great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is God's word. So these first few verses, right away, we see some really... Uh, pretty macho posturing, some trash talking going on here. So we got this guy Tobiah. If you, if you, I can translate it. Really, I've got a great translation. I've been studying from the original language. I'll paraphrase it for you. But Tobiah is basically, there's a couple of them, but Tobiah is kind of the the, the real, the real linguistic genius here. Uh, this guy, you know, he's saying he's saying, hey, this is this this hall is so fragile, such so poorly constructed that even a fox. Just the quietest of the creatures, what does the fox say? The fox, even, even just a, a small, insignificant little fox, if that little guy, just an, an insignificant, fluffy animal that's just a low-life creature, if even that, that little guy, he climbs up, it'd be so easy, just climb on the wall, even just his sheer weight will just bring the whole thing down. What noobs. What noobs. I mean, this, this guy should win, win an Oscar, for uh, such poetic wordery. And I think there's a moral here, the moral of the story, that the Bible wants to teach us a profound lesson. This is definitely one to write down, get it on a t-shirt, tattoo maybe, put it on your refrigerator. Sometimes, this is the lesson, sometimes your enemies are idiots. <laughs> sometimes they're complete idiots. I think of uh, and so I mean, it's, it's dangerous. I don't want to take away the, the real serious danger they're in here. But any, any consolation you can get, you're like, okay, he, you know, he's an absolute danger to us, but also an idiot. And you know, it makes me think of Biff, actually, and his goons from Back to the Future, kind of like imagining a bit of a Biff moment here with the whole, you know, if he's saying to Nehemiah, you know, make like a tree and get out of here, that kind of, that kind of response to Nehemiah. I'm imagining that. Um, but don't, let's not forget Sambalot as well. Actually, Sambalot is kind of the main guy. He's the ringleader here. He's the one that's in this kind of frenzy almost. It's almost like a premeditated, like an intentional frenzy that he's, he's, being, he's acting crazy and saying these rageful things. This is not just slight irritation. This guy is hostile. He is hostile. He's got murderous plans in his heart. He's trying to enrage his entire family and an entire army by villainizing these Jews, these Israelites, God's people. Now, the greatest response whenever you get attacked in this way with these kind of verbal on, this kind of verbal onslaught here of these threats, the best way is to not react, and Nehemiah does not do this, not react in the same way of spewing that stuff back to him. Uh, the best response is to actually, well, obviously he cries out to God, but the best really response is to get on and do the work. Because the reason these threats are being made is to stop the people from doing the important work that mattered for God's mission and God's purposes. And so the best res response is to say, well, we recognize that that's the reason this is happening. And so instead of giving into that, instead of being put off by that, we're going to do the work. We're going to prove these words wrong by our actions rather than getting caught into some slandering shouting match of who can be the meanest and who can say the most scariest things to each other. 
let's just get on. Let's pray to God, but let's get on and do the work that we need to do. Because in the end, we're going to see that Sambalot and Tobiah, these guys are humiliated in the end as the story goes on because the people have a mind to work and God blesses their activity, blesses their, their work. And so, so we, we see this response and uh, we see Nehemiah turning in prayer, verse 4 and 5, he turns in prayer and he prays this prayer. And this prayer might be a little troubling to us, actually. First time I read this, I was like, we need to sprinkle a little Jesus into this prayer. Because uh, verse 4 and 5, what does he say here? <laughs> oh, our God, for we are despised. Okay, so far so good. Uh, turn back their taunt against their own head. Okay. Um, and give them up to be plundered. All right. In a land where they are captives. Okay, now they're in captive. And do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Okay. This is pretty serious. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Now what's happening here? Something similar to this, actually, something very similar to this happens um, with King, with David, before he's king, actually, uh, when he's fighting Goliath, the famous story of David and Goliath. David says something very similar, actually, a similar sentiment to, to Goliath. Kind of in these war times, kind of in a kind of a holy war situation, these war times, it seems appropriate to kind of pray these things. Now, it's justifiable in one sense because God is being insulted. God's name is being is, is, is being kind of dragged through the mud, as it were. So if you think of the people you love the most and those that you care about the most, that you want to protect the most, you think about them being insulted and also threatened, not just by any random person, but by an entire army and an alliance of armies that want to destroy you and annihilate you. Imagine that against those that you love the most. You're going to be angry, and it's going to be righteous. You're allowed to have righteous anger so we've been insulted, we've been threatened, this is serious. And so, you know, this is not like Sambalot's anger, it's not like God's anger. So Sambalot is this like crazy, frenzy kind of madness to it. God's anger is always righteous. And his anger, we're told in the Bible elsewhere that God is slow to anger. So we tend, we tend to think about anger as only being, only being a negative emotion. But anger is a perfectly reasonable response to insults and threats. And God's anger, because he's slow to anger, that reveals to us that God is always measured in his anger, and his anger is reasonable. It's not an out-of-control, rageful, crazy anger. It's a righteous, just anger. We know, we know that God hates evil, that God's out to destroy all evil and work against. We know that. that God's, he hates evil, and he's going to bring justice upon all those who perpetrate evil and won't stop and won't repent of their evil. We know that's revealed time and time again in the Bible, just like, just like Batman. God's just like Batman, apart from the eyeshadow and the psychological instability, just like Batman. So rather than mounting an instant attack you know, against these, these, um, these goons, basically Nehemiah, what does he do? He cries out to God for intervention, cries out to God, God, would you intervene? And we might struggle with the idea that he's saying, don't blot out their sins. Don't forgive their sins. You know, don't let them off the hook. Like in your sight, you know. So, I mean, it's, maybe it's not the most righteous prayer ever. I don't know. But one, one thing we have to consider here is that it's one thing to want salvation for somebody, for somebody to, and this is God's heart, right, is that all people will be saved, that God is patiently waiting. It says that in Peter. God is patiently waiting for, for all to turn to him, for all those, uh, for, for people to be saved. So it's one thing you can want that in your heart. So maybe Nehemiah wants that. Maybe Nehemiah wants all people to know God and be made right with God. Maybe he can still want that, but there's an immediate legal response 
an act of justice that must happen because, he's, because these people are defying the orders of King Artaxerxes. So they're not only doing something immoral, they're also doing something illegal of the day. And so it's, it's actually appropriate for Nehemiah to cry out and say, they can't be let off the hook for this. Th th this is illegal and immoral. They have to be stopped. They need to be plundered. Don't just let... Because it is an injustice. It would be another injustice just to say, just ignore it. Let them off the hook. Don't worry about it. It's like, no, this has to be stopped. This has to be taken care of. And he's crying out to the God of heaven for cosmic justice. You know, there's no... He can't call 911. You know, there's no police force that's going to come help him. This is, this is the state of it. So... And he's crying out, God, plunder them. Let them be captives. And again, this is actually a righteous prayer. This is a righteous prayer. If you've thought during this whole season, this time we're in with what's happening with, with Russia and Ukraine, if you've thought to yourself, yeah, like I really hope and I really pray that these sanctions, these financial sanctions on Russia really, you know, we don't want to hurt the, the, the Russian people, but man, the, the, the corrupt government that's doing this great evil, yeah, we want them to be crippled. We don't want, want them to have the resources they have. We want them to be financially held back so that they can't continue in this war. Like, what we're praying and hoping for is the plundering of their wealth so that they cannot maintain their assault and their war. We're praying and hoping for the exact same thing that Nehemiah is praying for and hoping for here, saying, God, take away their wealth. Stop all their resources. Let them not be able to perpetrate any more evil upon us or anyone else. So after this prayer, then we see the work continues. The work continues. And we read, read that in verse 6. Verse 6. So we, it says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now this is very quick success. Obviously this is a long, big building project, so it would have taken some time still, but this is quite fast fast progress for the amount of resources they had, the kind of people that they had. Last week we looked at this, that it looks like it's just kind of common people, priests and others working on this. There are definitely some craftsmen and other people working on it as well, but it's just regular people doing the work. And we see this visible progress here. Half the wall is built to half the height of the original height of the wall. And it's always nice when sometimes God will help us increase our faith by giving us a visible sign of fruit of, hey, you're making progress. Like to have a mile marker like this, hey, you're halfway there, this is great. Even though the top half is the most difficult half, of course. But it's wonderful when God gives us that. It's very challenging when you don't have any sign, you don't have any visible fruit of like, are we doing the right thing? Because it doesn't look like it's working out. And there are times like that, and you have to have faith, but there are nice times as well where you say, hey, we've, we've made some progress here. And it's very wise Nehemiah is a very wise leader. He is focusing on their priorities. So rather than building section, complete section by section from bottom to top, obviously top to bottom wouldn't work, but from bottom section by section and leaving certain massive breaches in the wall, he's been very wise and he's built the first complete half first. Now it's not completely impenetrable. You know, people can still get through it, get over it, of course. But it's, it works as a deterrent, and it's going to slow down. Anyone that does attack, it's going to make them think twice, and it's going to slow them down so that you've got more time to mount a defense. So it's very wise from that perspective. So even, even this small barrier at this point is providing some physical protection for the people. Now, don't get confused about this. Sometimes we get... This, this, this 
account and these stories can sometimes make us scratch our heads because we can say, well, doesn't, doesn't the Bible say, you know, literally say, don't trust in wars? There's actually a verse that says that. Don't trust in wars. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in princes. It basically, the Bible over and, over and over again saying, don't trust in military might and governing power. Don't trust in any of those things. So just just a reminder, friendly reminder again, if we're trusting in those powers and those forces, we're very much misled and we need to put our hope and trust in God. So how is it that then they're doing this? And the only reason we ask that question is because we live in a safe liberal democracy where there's been lots of protection already provided for us. But in the absence of all of the safeties that we have in our culture, the real world, the rest of human history, you don't have, you can't call the police. You know, you don't have that option. And so you don't trust in these defenses. These defenses don't guarantee your safety. Just because you have a wall doesn't mean you'll be safe. What it does mean is, it means you'll be a little more safe. It might, it might mean you'll be a little more safe, but it doesn't guarantee your safety. You arm people with, with defensive weapons in case there's an attack. Does that mean you'll be safe? No, it doesn't mean you'll be safe. The hubris of the human heart is we've built up all these defenses, we've built up all these fortifications, we've got all these weapons, all this training, we've got all this, all this stuff. We are invincible. That's, what the Bible, that's why the Bible says don't trust in those things because any army can be defeated. Any fight can be lost. Any weapon can be overpowered. Any tactic can be defeated. That's why you don't trust in it. That's why God is your, your ultimate warrior, your ultimate protector and provider. But out of care, out of love, out of protection for God's people, yes, it's having a physical barrier, having a God, this stuff, it's just practical. Makes sense. This is what's happening here. Now, it says that people had a mind to work. They gave themselves, they, gave, they had a mind to work. And this verse was really impacting me as I was meditating on this verse and thinking about this this week, about just committing, committing to something. And I want us to ask ourselves as well as a church, have I committed in my mind? Am I, am I laser focused on following through with God's plans and God's purposes and being committed to the rebuilding, the restoration efforts? Is my mind set on it? Because it can be, it's wonderful when God's people are in harmony together. Our mind is set on it. Because if your mind is set on something, it's amazing what people can achieve especially when we believe God's called us to do it and God gives us the strength to do it and God's our ultimate protection, especially when we believe that and our mind is set on it. So do we have the heart? Do we have the mind for it? I was so proud last week we did our serving fair and I saw many people, many of you, uh, sign up for opportunities to serve and that meant so much to me. I was so blessed to see that, to see, yes, there's, there's faith here, there's, there's trust here, there's a willingness here to jump in. And I want to encourage us to keep at that, to keep doing that, that as a church, we want to raise up also not just serving areas, but we want to raise up more small group leaders. And that means people assisting in small groups. And so ask yourself, you know, do I have a mind, do I have a heart to rebuild ministry in that way, to help our groups grow, to help be an assistant in a group, to help lead some of the groups, to help emerge as a leader? Those things can seem scary. They can seem challenging. But as we entrust ourselves to God, he grows us. He transforms us. He changes us. The hard thing is, you know, when you've been fighting a battle, when you're under great threat, and you don't have a lot of resources, and you've got great opposition, it's so easy to say, I'll let someone else take this one. I kind of would like someone else to have the responsibility. You know, it's a lot easier, right, to say that, to say, oh, I'll just let someone else handle it. 
But I don't, want, I don't want to have that kind of report written about me. I want to have this kind of report. When I, when I read this verse, verse 6, and it said that the people had a mind to work, I thought, that's the kind of thing I want to have written about me. That, that people would say Matt had, had the mind for it. He had the, he had the mind and the heart. You know, he just was set on doing what was right, doing the right thing. And I want to encourage us as a church that, that that's a great legacy to leave. That's a great thing to communicate to other people. Yeah, they're the kind of person that had their mind made up about it. They weren't wavering. We all know we're frustrated by people who are kind of loosey-goosey, you know, about things, kind of wavering on things. No, we don't want to be people who are wavering. We want to be people who have a strong foundation, people who are trustworthy, people who others can come to when they need strength and courage. To say, yeah, I've got some strength and courage for you. Now, sometimes we're the people that need that too, and that's okay. But we want to be those who are with our minds made up that we want to do it. And any time we have our mind made up and we say, yes, I'm all in, I'll serve the Lord, I've got my, my heart's in it, there's opposition. There's always opposition. An opposition to God's work is a great sign we're on track. We're doing exactly the right thing. It sucks really big because it's a scary thing and the level of threats can be pretty serious sometimes depending on what it is or just intimidating, but there will always be opposition. And we see it here, verses 7 and 8. Let's read this again. 7 and 8, sorry, uh, 7, 8 and 9. It says, But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we pray to our God and set a God as a protection against them day and night. So this alliance, we already learned this in previous weeks, that there's surrounding countries and armies that are against them. And now this alliance is expanding. It's growing. So we're now hearing of the Ashdodites who are now joining the ranks of this alliance that's forming against them. And I'm sure these tribes and these people, I'm sure they probably don't like each other too much. And they probably have their own squabbles and fights and their own strange power dynamics going on. But it's amazing when you have a common enemy and you have to align yourselves with people that you don't normally like in order to fight them. So they're aligning themselves with them. So you got, uh, we, 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 we had the, we, we learned of uh, the Sambalot of Samaria, right, who's from the north. We learned of uh, Tobiah, the, the Ammonite of the Ammonites from the east. And then we've also learned of the Arabs uh, from the south. And now the, the Ashtodots get added in as well. There's this, this alliance is growing and expanding. Nehemiah doesn't know, will this be an all-out war? Will this be a decisive? Will they all attack us at once? And it will just be an, a, just a slaughter. We'll just get some massive influx of troops all at once, and it'll be a decisive victory. Or will this be targeted raids where they, they come in and just kill a few people and take some stuff, and they kill a few people here and take some stuff? We don't know exactly what they're thinking, but it sounds bad. It sounds serious. And he learns one of the, the things that, that, that is revealed to us here in the passage is that they plan not just to murder. So this is now... It's a direct threat of murder. We're going to come in and kill you. You're not going to see it coming. We're going to come in and kill you. Not only that, but also their plan is to cause confusion. To cause confusion. One of the greatest weapons, see, wars are fought with real weapons, but one of the great weapons of war, of all warfare, whether it's physical warfare or spiritual, spiritual warfare that we face, is confusion. Our enemy specializes in confusion. Confusion halts progress. It's kind of like the first time you try and use a shopping cart when you're at Aldi. It's 
It's very confusing. So this is a barrier between me and me eating food, and I have to clear this confusion up so I can get the food. So confusion is, is a powerful tactic for, for our spiritual enemy, our spiritual forces of darkness against us that want to attack us, and we have real enemies in the world as well at different times. Confusion, we have to be aware that one of the early tactics is the tactic of confusion. And the antidote to confusion is clarity. Clarity. I've seen times and seasons as a leader where God's people, and this has happened to me as well. This can happen to any of us. We're all susceptible to this. I've seen times and seasons in ministry where God's people, where either a group or a lot of people, can get caught up in a massive cloud of complete confusion. And what it takes is it takes clearer minds and people slowing down the process and people with wisdom to say, we need to get clarity. We need the truth. We've got to find out the facts, what's actually happening in these situations, in these circumstances, rather than just being in a complete cloud of confusion. Of, we just don't know. We get given. The longer confusion goes on, the more crazy we get. God is not a God of confusion. So if you're in a cloud of confusion where things don't make sense, well, this person did this, and this person said this, and there's this threat for this, and this opposition from here, and there's all this confusion happening, the confusion is designed to create instability on the inside and so that people fight together on the inside. So whenever there's confusion, you always have to tell yourself, this is not from God, this is a tactic of our enemy, and the antidote is clarity and truth. What is actually happening? What is actually going on? To get rid of the confusion, to better, because otherwise the, the enemy wins. If we're confused, you, you're overpowered. How can you coordinate? How can you be cohesive? How can you trust each other? How can you know how to respond to opposition if you're not, if you've not got clarity and trust amongst each other? So Nehemiah resolves this threat in two ways. In a, in a spiritual way and a practical way. So again, they pray. This is what I love about Nehemiah. He's a man of prayer. Praying. He's always praying. I love it. So many times. It comes back to prayer. No matter what it is. Hey, let's pray about that first. But then also a man of action. So what do they do? They set a guard. And it tells us. They got swords. They got spears. They got bows. They're there day and night. In some of the enclaves, some of the areas that are more vulnerable where people might be able to get in, we're setting them there. They've got people with lethal weapons to protect everybody else. When there is legitimate danger, when there is a direct threat on your life or on somebody else's life, or even just, it doesn't even have to be premeditated. It can just be there is a threat here. You, you don't, like I said, you can't call 911. In their situation, you can't flee. Fleeing is a good option if you know it's coming. Getting away and fleeing, that's a perfectly good op option. But sometimes you can't flee. And you don't have all of the, the, the safety measures in a liberal democracy that we have, the only option you have left is to make a stand, is to make a stand, to be a rock and conti continue to give the Oscars, right? Continue to, to do that in the face of any kind of... You get, you get the joke, right? You get the, the reference. Somebody got it. Thank you. All right. What did I get to? So... I think as Christians, sometimes we can struggle with this idea because we love the words of Jesus, love your enemy. Nehemiah can still love these enemies and still want them to be, to, to be made right with God. 
all the Jews of this time can still say, we can still love our enemies and want, them, and want the world to know God. Yes, all of that is true. But when people are hell-bent on perpetrating evil and murdering you, sometimes you have to take a stand. Now, we shouldn't be people who are eager to use lethal weapons. Let me tell you how, how I tend to think about this for myself. In all honesty, I like to, rather than being someone who wants to use a lethal weapon, I like to think of my entire body just being a lethal weapon. You know, like Kung Fu Panda or, you know, if I fall on someone, you know, I could crush them to death. Whatever it might be. <laughs> you know, it's, it's easy to say brave-sounding things when, when you live in, 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 a, in a society that has provided for your safety in such an effective way. You know, all of the safety measures we have of, of all the, the emergency services and army and all of, all of that stuff that we, you know, our military, all the things that we have that keep us safe, it's so easy to say brave-sounding things and to say, say these kind of things and not realize that that's not normal. To have that stuff is not normal. And to think about these things, to think about setting a guard that you might be somebody at some point that's drafted to say, I've got to hold a weapon of war. I've got to fight. Actually, my son and I, my oldest son, Jones, we've been watching Band of Brothers uh, recently, that, that show, Band of Brothers. And man, it's amazing what these men did in, in World War II. Just the sacrifice, the bravery that they had just in the face of, you know, I just, every, every time I'm watching it, I'm just like, I'm just questioning myself. Like, would I, would I be that brave in that moment? Like, and you have no idea. You have no idea until you, unless you face something like that. But it's not an easy thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a horrible reality of life. It's not an easy thing to think about. And even these people who were used to this way of life, right? They had been exiled. They'd seen death. They'd seen war. They know what evil governments and evil dictators are like. They know this all the time. And what do they say in response? Verse 10, in Judah it was said, so now these are the people who are supposed to be doing the work, who were enthusiastic. What does it say? They says, it says, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is so much, oh, sorry, there is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This actually has a poetic rhyme to it. This is, there's a kind of a rhythm to this verse in the original language. So it, it could be that it's a chant, that people are actually chanting this, or a song, people are actually singing this, these words, but they, or it's a rhyme, it's some kind of rhyme. It's a catchy phrase. This is not a good track to be playing in your head. This is not the kind of music you want to listen to. The enthusiasm's worn off. I would say that this, this, this result is more dangerous than even the opposition they're facing, even the threat they're getting. This is more dangerous because you actually, the threat, they could overpower it if they're ready for it. Or it may not completely destroy them. They might, they might get attacked, but they might still better carry on later on, even if they have losses. Like the opposition, it may not pan out. They may not even come. But this, this, playing this track in their heads, singing this song over themselves, the song of failure, this could stop everything. This is a bigger threat than the opposition that they face. In this lament, in this, this song, there is no silver lining. They're not saying, they're not, they're not coming back to calling out to God even. There's no calling out to God. There's no ultimate trust in God. Other laments in the Bible typically always come back to some type of 
hey, God's still in control. Hey, we've got to cry out for God. Hey, let's eventually let's trust in God. Even though there's a lament, it still comes back to that. There is nothing of that here. This is bad. This is really, really bad. When people get to this place where there's, there's complete, utter despair, no hope. I mean, don't, you can't blame them, right? They've got murderous, they've got, they've got all of these surrounding nations wanting to murder them, sneak in in the nighttime and kill them and cause confusion. So it's a pretty serious, pretty heavy moment. When we, we, let me put it this way, we don't even need an enemy to attack us when we sing the song of failure over ourselves because we're already doing the work of the enemy. We're actually speaking the work, the words of our adversary over ourselves. They don't even need to come and assault us and attack us and do anything direct. They're, we've already given them the power because we're singing their track. We're saying their rhyme. We're repeating their words. And therefore, they have won that battle. And not only that, not only is this internal struggle happening, but it's, if it could get worse, this is why I say this is one of the most impossible times of Israel's history. If it could get worse, it gets worse, doesn't it? In verse um, 12 and 13, verse 11 and th 12, excuse me, verse 11 and 12, and our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop them from work. So that's a big threat. And then this is verse 12. This is the, the thing that gets worse. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. <laughs> so now they've got relatives, their own people, pleading with them, coming from all the surrounding areas saying, what are you doing? You're insane. You're going to die. They're going to stop you from doing this. And they're repeating it over and over and over again. I mean, you got to think there are some people that are thinking, maybe that's the voice of God. Like all these people, they're all coming from all the surrounding regions, pleading with us 10 times over, drumming it home. Wow. War, war in the real sense and in the spiritual sense, we're in a spiritual battle. All forms of war, they're not just fought with, with weapons, there's a massive psychological component to all war. Is your, and here's the psychological component. Is, is your mind strong enough to stick with your mission or give up when everything looks like it's lost? Is your mind strong enough? Actually, the, if you think about the, the, the Ukrainian and Russian situation right now, even from day one, who does it seem like is kind of winning the war? It seems like it's the Ukrainians, right? Zelensky's been painted as some kind of heroic genius who's like, will just die trying and just all the, you know, they just, they've been painted this, just painted as these amazing warriors who just will fight and do whatever it takes to, for freedom for their country. And that's, that's psychological, that's propaganda. Who knows if it's true? It may not even be true. I don't know. It's wartime. You don't know anything in wartime. Is it true? Who knows? But that's, they're winning the mind game. They're winning the psychological battle against a nuclear power with tanks and superior weapons. They've got like drones. You know, the Ukrainians have drones and javelins and guns, whatever they have. They have different things they're doing. When I say javelins, not like old school javelins. You understand what a javelin is, right? It's a tank destroying weapon. All right. They're, but they're, they're, they're showing incredible resolve. Whenever you enter a battle, the test that you really face is not, do I know how to use my weapon, although that's important. Not do I, do I know the tactics of war, although that's important. Is Will my mind withstand the track 
that gets played, the song that gets played, the accusations that come, the people that plead, and the, the internal struggles that I have. Do I have the strength of mind, the internal fortitude to stand strong and say, it doesn't matter what comes my way. I, I, I know the truth. I know what I should be doing. And I'm going to keep joining, banding together with those around me who are on the mission, who are going to do the work together. Nehemiah knows this. He displays great leadership. This is how he responds, verse 13 and 14. So it says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans, so they're together in their, their family units, with their swords, their spears, and their bows, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, totally awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He doesn't come out with some massive presidential ideological speech. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He's either just been watching Braveheart and just, you know, regurgitating some, some great lines he heard, or, or I think this is the most likely thing, is that he is just a, a skillful leader who understands you just got to bring people back to the basics. What do you have that's more important than your faith in God and those that God has put around you? What's more important than that? Fight for that. Everything else, because in moments of life and death situations, Everything else goes away, doesn't it? Everything else, you're like, I can lose that, I can lose that, I can lose that. I could lose everything else. I think Steve, the, the famous author Stephen King, when he had a car accident one time, he was stranded on the side of the road in a very serious car accident. He had a wallet full of credit cards, and he realized, it doesn't matter how much money I have available to me, I desperately need an ambulance right now. I desperately need help right now. I'm, I'm, all that stuff is meaningless. When it comes down to it, to a life and death, in the end, you're like, God... And the people that God has put around me, that is what matters most. What a, what a great move from Nehemiah to remind the people of this. What did, what did Jesus say? Jesus said in John 15, verse 13, Jesus says this. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is powerful language to say, be willing to, hey, think of your, your wives, your your. your, your your children, your family, your, your homes. Think of the glory of God. Think about all the big purposes of God. Think about that's, this is an act of love. You know, fortification, being willing to mount a defense is not about violence. It's a necessary thing. It's an unfortunate thing that I hope that none of us will ever have to experience. But sometimes in history and in times on the earth, that is necessary for people to stand up like the Ukrainians right now having to stand up to defend their freedoms. When that happens... The motivation, the godly motivation is do this to love those whom God has put around you. Do it for the greater good. Do it for that reason. And when we think of Jesus, we think of, so these are the words of Jesus, but when we think of Jesus sacrificing himself on the cross, we think of him laying down his life for us. When we think of him being willing to do that, he did that to guard us, to protect us. That was a Actually, it wasn't just a defensive move, because it, it, it was a defensive move in the sense that the cross creates a shield. Not only does it take our evil away, but it protects us from the future power of evil. It breaks the power of evil in our lives. And it's, it's, it's a powerful... See, we think of the death of Jesus as just being a very passive move. He just got killed, and he won. How does that work? 
Well, it says elsewhere in the Bible that in the book of Ephesians that Jesus led a train of captives in his victory. That means he bound up demonic forces and powers. So Jesus isn't just this victim who gets crucified. He's somebody who fights and fights a very serious battle to free us from the forces of evil. This is the great work of Jesus, the warrior Jesus. He came to die for our sin, to take away our sin. And if you've received the free gift of salvation, make sure today you make it the most enjoyable part of your day to celebrate the gift of salvation. There's all kind of great ways we can enjoy today. All kind of great things we could do to say, I'm going to make this day a good day. I can do all kinds of stuff. But make sure the greatest thing that you do today and every day is to make the greatest joy and the greatest celebration that gift of salvation. Because it cost Jesus his life. Out of love, he laid down his life to fight and to protect us, his friends, his followers, his children. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah. Nehemiah is talking to the people, remember. Remember God. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Hey, you, you might lose your life. You know what? Sometimes you have to pay with your life as well. But God will vindicate it. God will, God will watch over it. God will reward you for it. God will bless you for it. Today, I want to ask us to die a little bit to ourselves, to lay down some of our pride and some of our fears and to step out in boldness, to be a God, to be on God spiritually, to fight the spiritual battle. So we do this thing called Share the Grace, and we do it a few times a year. And today we're doing our Share the Grace. It's a very different type of thing we're doing. Share the grace means that we do some, something practical where we're communicating the good news of the grace to, of, of Jesus to people. Sometimes we do that in very direct ways. Sometimes we do it in more kind of passive ways. There's works of justice we do sometimes. Sometimes we are going out and sharing our faith with people. There's different ways that we do it. In light of Easter coming up, I want to ask each of you to do something today following service. We're going to hand out, in just a second here, we're going to hand out these stacks of door hangers, right? They're in stacks of 50. And I want every person here to take two stacks today. And here's what I want you to do with them. Consider these weapons of war, if you will. Right? You might get a paper cut, hopefully not. The rubber band also might sting a little bit. Here's what I want you to do, two things. I want you to walk out from here, one stack of 50. I want you to take 20, 30 minutes walk around the neighborhood here, the direct area around this building, put out one stack of 50 today. Low barrier, very low barrier. Somebody might, yes, somebody might see you doing it that you know, but don't worry about that. Put, and then take the other 50 home with you and put them in your area where you live, on your street, your block, your building. And if you're, if you're really worried about your next door neighbors, then just do it a street over. I won't judge you. I might do that, actually. I don't know. I don't know yet. I haven't decided. We'll see. We'll see how brave I am <laughs> in, my, in my, my moment of, of war, spiritual war. That's the ask today. Let's have, actually, let's have the, the Welcome Experience team. If you guys could start handing these out, I want everyone to get two. Actually, if you're feeling extra holy, take three. Why not? If you're feeling extra, extra holy. But I, I'm going to be taking two, so feel free to take two. That's the ask today, is to consider. And these are invitations to Easter all right, and Good Friday, and we want to pray. As we put these door hangers out today, we want to pray and say, God, would you use these to reach people? Some people will get these, and they'll say, those pesky Christians, not again, and they'll throw it in the trash. 
Do we lose anything for that? We don't lose anything for that, all right? Because if God wants to reach someone, he'll reach them. But you know what? There'll be other people that'll get this and they'll say, Easter, it's time to come back. You know what? That's true for me. I think it is time to come back. And obviously, it's a double meaning, right? Because it's time for Jesus to come back. You get that? Right? Anyone? No one got that yet? Man, you guys are so slow sometimes. I'm just kidding. Just, that's, I'm just messing around. It's too cryptic, Matt. Too cryptic this time. Here's what, I, what else I want you to do as you're doing these door hangers. So find a buddy today. Don't do, you know, feel free to do this by yourself. It will slow you down if you get a buddy, but that's all right. Make it fun. Find, go out and do this in pairs, you know, just like Noah's Ark. Um, just in case there's a flood coming, go in pairs. And, um, but do this. Pray. Pray that God will give you one divine opportunity, just one opportunity. Maybe you'll get more, but pray for one that you would actually get to talk with someone. It may not happen, but pray. Say, God, make it really easy. One opportunity that somebody, whether I'm approaching their home or they're walking down the street, and I just have a really easy chance just to strike up a conversation with them. One person that I could personally hand this to and say, would you come to my church on Easter? Do you have any plans for Easter Sunday? Whatever the, the ask or invitation is, pray for just one of those. Do you have faith to pray for that? I guess pray for the, the amount that you have the faith for, all right? But I'm giving you permission to pray for one of those. Maybe it doesn't happen. But how powerful if you can put out 100, each person can put out, sow 100 seeds, and maybe somebody would show up that says, you know what, I've got a door hanger. I've been thinking about God. Maybe I've been watching online, but I've been afraid to show up in person, and then I got a door hanger and thought, all right, that's it, I'm coming. God uses stuff like this all the time. Let's not say no for people. Let's say yes to God and take this step. This, I feel like this is, should be a low barrier for us. And two weeks of epically long sermons. I'm not going to apologize. It's just the way it is. Just deal with it. So that's the way it is. Next Sunday, we're actually going to take a break from Nehemiah. We're going to take a four-week break, and then we're going to get back to Nehemiah. And we're going to be doing our Secrets series. Secrets is a series we do at Easter time once a year where we tell the stories of our church members. We're going to have some special video testimonies put together for that. It's going to be very powerful going through people's, some of the darkest moments that they faced and their faith in Christ and how that's brought them through it and still helping them through it. So be prepared for secrets uh, next Sunday. Be thinking about that and ready for that.